This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have uh, joining us um, Siddhartha Mukherjee, and hopefully he will pop up here on the panel. There he is. Uh, you know, I, I did not uh, know until a few minutes ago that we were going to have um, uh, this fantastic and important Pulitzer Prize-winning author, um, Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, on screen. I thought he was going to be with me on stage, so I rushed. As many of you know, we have a little bookstore here uh, with people with the books of the scholars, the scientists, the social phenoms like Deepak Chopra and others. Um, All of those books are over there. So I went over and I grabbed the book. Uh, I paid for this book, uh, which I rarely do anymore, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Uh, This book is arguably the most important book on cancer Uh, that has been written in this era, and we're so pleased to have uh, the author with us. He's collaborating with Ken Burns uh, in producing a PBS documentary uh, on the history of cancer, the biography of cancer, and so he's here with us uh, to have a discussion, a dialogue, and (laughs) and, yeah, great. Greetings, Siddhartha. Hi. Hi, how are you? How are you? So, (laughs) good, good, good to see you. so can you talk, can you basically, the, 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 the book you've done, which is uh, won so many awards, is, is the definitive account of essentially the history of cancer from the beginning of, of, of our recorded uh, encounters with it to the present. Can you share with us a little bit about what drove you to do this? You are an assistant doctor of medicine at, at, at Columbia University, but you, you, you know, are now a prize-winning author. So please share with us how you got into this and what you've learned. Uh, well, you know, the, the impetus for the book um, was really a question that a patient had asked me while I was uh, trying to treat her uh, several years ago. She said, I, I, I'm willing to go on with my next cycle of treatment, but I need to know what it is that I'm fighting. It's a very simple question. I need to know what it is that I'm fighting. And I was astounded by the, the fact that here we are running a, a presumably massive human campaign against cancer on every front, the political front, the scientific front, from basic research spanning to uh, advocacy in Washington. And yet we lacked a kind of uh, a a manifesto, if you will, or a description, a history, a story of what what was this all about? Uh, Where had this started? Is it old? Is it new? What happens next? Where are we in it? Are we in the middle? Are we to the end? Um, and so, you know, in, in, in some ways, I, I wrote the book back to this, this patient that I was treating, but also I, I wrote it for myself. I, it was as if I needed my own roadmap um, and a public roadmap to where we were and what, what was happening next. You know, I, I've you know, enjoyed jumping around in the book uh, this morning and, and looking at it, but it occurs to me that, you know, of, of all presidents, Richard Nixon was actually the one to... to formally declare a war on cancer uh, in the early 1970s. How would well, you... Well, Richard, as you know, would love to declare wars on many things. Yeah, the wars on, yeah, there was war on many things. I was the first director of the Nixon Center, so I try to mention Nixon in every event I do. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, one of, the, one of the questions that would be interesting for you to handicap is how has our war on cancer, how's our progress, if any, uh, developed since then? And how do you look at this time of... Just, we're in UC San Diego, astounding revolutions in science and computing capacity and uh, uh, our understanding of genes. Do you think we're at fundamentally a different moment that if that war were relaunched today, we would be uh, in a different space? 
Well, I think the war metaphor is a complicated metaphor. So let's dwell on that for a second. Um, I think, uh, you know, several people have pointed out that, you know, you, you, the, the idea of the war, wars are won or lost. Um, scientific battles are not won or lost. They're solved or, or, or yet unsolved. So there's a fundamental conflict with the idea of declaring war on, uh, you know, it's like saying I, I'm, I'm declaring war on the puzzle. Um, you don't declare war on the puzzle. You either solve it or you leave it unsolved or you try to solve it. So, um, you know, and, and, and so, so now, now turning the metaphor over to the, the metaphor of puzzle, I think we're somewhere in the middle of that puzzle. Um, we have learned an enormous amount from the, uh, the revolutions in biology, in particular the revolution of genomics and the capacity to detect all the genetic alterations in various cancers. Number one, we've realized that cancer is not one disease but many diseases, that in fact, even what we call breast cancer is a whole bunch of diseases that actually are somewhat similar but also somewhat different under the genetic microscope. And so that allows us now to have the fundamental landscape, as it were, or the territory on which, if you want to persist on, on the metaphor of war, the war will be fought. So in other words, we now know what the territory looks like. It's still, I think, a long way from finding out what to do about these genes. How do you now use this information to try to make therapies that don't just recapitulate the problems of the past, the, uh, you know, the somewhat if effective but largely ineffective chemotherapies, the somewhat effective surgeries, the somewhat effective radiation therapy. How do you take all this uh, information from the past and make it in information about the future? I mean, the bottom line is that I think we're in the middle. Uh, we're in the middle, and it's an important middle. Wars don't, don't get transformed. Puzzles don't get solved without going through the middle. You have to go through it. And that's where we are, and we need the energy. We need the, the, the scientific energy, the, the creative energy, the energy from the information systems um, to be able to solve the next uh, series of important questions in this puzzle. You know, the Atlantic has hosted quite a number of uh, healthcare and, and, and health uh, innovation forums. And one of the things that comes out, particularly with regard to, to how I've looked at your book real quickly, your book tells and links together many case studies, many human stories, uh, history of this disease, looks at uh, cutting-edge science, and it, and it creates a really a magnificent narrative on, on this disease. But the truly magnificent narrative exists out there in the, in the health records of people that have suffered with this, the many millions who, who are living with uh, cancer or who have died, who've had various treatments. And so one of the, the, the revolutions occurring today is the big data revolution. And one of the questions that has stymied somewhat those who would like to look in the case studies of all of this and look in the aggregate at everyone is uh, concerns about privacy. Do you think that's a gap that can be jumped over? How do you respond when, when as, a, as a scientist, as a, uh, 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 you know, in, in medicine, thinking about here you've got the availability of you know, to, to, to take your book and multiply it by a million given everything out there and, and yet we've got a lot of resistance, basically, on the privacy front. Well, I'm going to say two things. The first thing is that it's very important as a scientist uh, not to confuse big data with smart data. Mm -hmm. They're not the same thing. In fact, very small pieces of data can be vastly more informative than very large pieces of data. So there's a kind of fetishism of big data, which I, don't, I actually don't subscribe to. I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in, in data that's intelligent, in data that really provides answers to questions, and it's not necessarily big data. Small experiments can, can generate huge results. I mean, you know, uh, an apple falling from a tree on your head can be much more important than 50 pieces, you know, 50,000 uh, pixels of, uh, 
of nonsense information on, on Facebook, say. So, so I think we need to discriminate between those two things. So the real question is how do we make smart data available and to what extent does really smart data impinge on, pri- on questions like privacy and on questions like what, what needs to be, uh, you know, what needs to be kept, information that needs to be kept uh, conserved in a way in a, in a private space. You know, to be perfectly honest, I, I really don't see a big conflict here. I mean, mm. I, think the, I think there is plenty of space for the anonymization of information such that the information does not impinge on, on deeply private information. Uh, I think what we're trying to do in cancer is to extract from big data smart data. How do you take genomic information of not one individual but thousands of individuals and create medicines that are that are that are better targeted, that have less toxicity, that lengthen life with with fewer side effects. And it's not; it's far from clear to me that the biggest challenge there is privacy. It's just not. Mm. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of movement, as it were, in in the in the in the conservation of privacy ar- around the idea of data, and it's useful and it's helpful. But I would put it to you that that is not the biggest scientific problem facing cancer researchers, researchers today. The biggest scientific problem facing cancer researchers today is how to take data, which is very complex, is multidimensional, it's very big, and to convert it into th- things that are usable. Mm. I mean, can you use the information from the genome? Can you use the information about lifestyles to convert it into prevention, is to convert it to identify carcinogens that we don't know about, to, wa- to make new drugs happen that, target, that targets in the cell, in, in the in molecular targets that haven't been previously exploited. Do you think there are means and methods of doing just what you said needs to happen that, that, are, that are emerging? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it has to be married to uh, what I call real biology and real medicine. So in other words, y- you know, it is not clear to me that the data revolution is going to solve the cancer problem. It will provide part of the solution to the cancer problem because cancer is a complex disease, but it's not the only solution to the cancer problem. It has to be an integrator or longitudinal solution. Um, for instance, uh, you know, you don't need big data to tell us that cigarette smoking is a major cause of lung cancer around the world today, which it is. Uh, what you do need is a mechanism in, country, in developing countries, for instance, to stop young people from smoking. Mm. Now, that is, not, it, that is not a data problem. It is a problem about the way we deploy data, the way we understand social networks. It's, again, it's, it's, I, I'd like to discriminate between big data and between smart data. You, you might have a single intervention, might be successful in transforming the prevention of lung cancer in developing countries. Now, where does that information come from? Come from? It might come from the extraction of information from very complex social networks, or it might be an advertising campaign that is actually based on something that was done in the 1950s. So, again, just to emphasize the point, let's not confuse big with smart. Great. That's a uh, great point. You write in your book, um, section I, I, I love this uh, section, the philosopher of science Karl Popper coined the term risky prediction to describe the process by which scientists verify untested theories. Good theories, Popper proposed, generate risky predictions. They presage an unanticipated fact or event that runs a real risk of not occurring or being proven incorrect. When this unanticipated fact proves true or the event does occur, the theory gains credibility and robustness. And then through this chapter, you talk somewhat historically looking back at those people who made uh, risky assessments that began to kind of help fill out uh, our understanding of the story and history of cancer. 
And I'm interested, given your, all the narratives that you've sown into this and, and, and your, um, your profound knowledge now of how we've evolved, today, looking forward, how do you uh, see what the, the risky prediction? what are the risky predictions that we would posit from this time in 2013 that might be the ones to challenge our own uh, understanding and, and paradigm of thinking about cancer? So these are the, the, it's, an, it's, a, it's a deeply important question you're asking. And so let me su- propose some risky predictions. And I encourage people in the, in the audience actually to think about their own risky predictions because this is how science moves ahead. So in other words, what's a risky prediction? A risky prediction is something, is a hypothesis that runs a real tangible risk of failing to be true. In other words, it's very easy to come up with hypotheses that are likely to be true, right? The... the the, and as, as Popper and others have pointed out, the, the, real, the, the real driving force of much of science is to, is to put your neck out there and to make a prediction that is truly that truly runs the likely to be not proven true and thereby proves or disproves theory. This goes back to the idea that Popper had of, of the idea of falsifiability, which is that you know, theories are only useful if they're truly falsifiable. If you propose a theory, you have to be able to propose an argument or an experiment that will disprove the theory. And just to give you one example to f- fill this out, I mean, you, you know, you can't say, uh, you know, you can't say, for instance, you can't say, you, you know, alternative medicine really works in cancer, but unfortunately using your metrics, I'm afraid you won't ever be able to prove it, right? So that's a theory that does not have a risky prediction because essentially you've taken the risk out of the prediction. You've said there's no way you can prove or disprove it. So let me give you some examples of some risky predictions. Number one, Deep genomic annotation of cancer, that means sequencing cancers at a very deep genetic level, is going to have a transformative impact on cancer medicine and prevention. That's a risky risky proposition. Mm. In other words, you're saying that big information about all the genetic mutations that cancer has will, in the end, provide new mechanisms of treatment, cure, and prevention of cancer. We don't know this yet. Uh, We would like to believe it's true because we've invested a huge amount of resources scientific person, personnel um, and political resources into the Cancer Genome Project. And the question is, what are the dividends of that project? Will it really transform into true new medicines appearing in the horizon? So that's point number one. Here's another risky prediction. The understanding of the immune system and its relationship to cancer will provide a new set of uh, diagnostic and therapeutic tools in the future. Maybe it's true. In fact, we're beginning to see the first few amazing new uh, cancer drugs that specifically target the immune system, activate it, and make it active against cancer cells. But we don't know if these will really ultimately become common. Are these common targets? Are these uncommon targets? Is it true for all cancers? Not true for all cancers? That's a big question. Here's a risky prediction number three. Combinations of of therapies that are targeted against particular genes or genetic pathways, if you combine them, you all of a sudden will get synergistic and huge effects that single therapies don't have in themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a risky prediction. We don't know if that's true or not. We know in general that combination chemotherapy, which kills cancer cells relatively indiscriminately, can have a huge effect impact on some cancers, but on other cancers it's not very effective. So is it true that targeting multiple pathways using much more these novel, uh, these novel uh, therapeutics will have a series of impacts on, on cancer? I'll give you one last example, and this is a political example. Um, Altering the structure, the way we perform cancer research currently, which is based on a, on a model of, of academic research being translated by translational physicians 
and ultimately by pharmaceutical, by the pharmaceutical industry in a kind of linear manner, uh, will produce the next generation of cancer prevention and therapeutics. Now, you could say, well, it, it generates a risky prediction. Are there other models out there that would actually work better? Could there be a more superior model that produces a more transformative impact on cancer therapy in the near future? So these, I, I, you know, that's just a spectrum. And I, I could go on. I could give you tens of thousands of, probably not thousands, I, I would say dozens of examples of truly risky predictions that span the gamut from basic science to the political organization of cancer research. I, I think that kind of list is really vital uh, in part giving people an on-ramp to understand what the cutting edge of thinking in this area is doing. So such a list is, is, is such a valuable thing. Your book is not only a... And Steve, let, let me pause yeah. for a second. Yeah. Who do you think should generate that list? Well, who, I think... who, who, is in the, who is in the position? Is it, is it a public responsibility? Is, it, could it be, is that list to be crowdsourced? Does it, require, does it require a public conversation? If so, who is having that public conversation? How is that public conversation being funded? I mean, we understand the importance of the problem. You know, mm -hmm. one in three, if not one in four, if not one in two men and women will be afflicted by cancer in their lifetimes in the United States. One in four uh, men and women will die of cancer. This is your problem. This is right. my problem. This is our children's problem. This is our parents' problem. So where are we, where, what are the mechanisms of having this conversation? Who is having it? Um, and what, who are the critics of this conversation? Who, who, who is surveying and scrutinizing this conversation? Uh, great question. I think that the, the follow-up I was going to have on that was that as you your book is not just a story of cancer, it's really a story of society and how it's mobilized to think about it and deal with it. And one of the interesting questions I have today, particularly what we see going on with Washington, Washington is not the be-all in this, but we're at a you know, world-class research facility here. You work in a world-class uh, uh, hospital and, and research university yourself. And in this, when you look at the ecosystem that's been uh, developed over time, the stakeholders, the innovators, the scientists, the funders, you know, the Bayh-Dole Act, which gave universities a stake in advancement uh, of science and economic incentive. I'm interested in how someone, because you, you know this world much better than I do, how would you say we're doing in terms of building a, a stronger ecosystem, and do you see that, an ecosystem of dealing with this question, and do you see it enhanced by what's going on now, and we, we can either talk about Washington or not, or do you see some of the key elements of that social uh, stakeholding in this uh, being undermined? Well, I'm happy to talk about Washington, although I'm also, it's a depressing conversation. So, you know, uh, the, 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 the... It won't be my last question, the bottom so we line, have to end it alone. I think is that it's a fragile ecosystem. Mm. Like all important ecosystems, we have to recognize it's a fragile ecosystem, what you cannot do, and, and, and I've been to, like you have been in Washington several times, what you cannot do with cancer is you cannot say, or with any scientific project, you can't say, well, you know, we've run out of money today, so let's put it on hold for five years, and when the budgets creep up, when the time happens, we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, that just doesn't happen. Science is a continuous conversation, and if it breaks, it's a broken conversation. Um, so... It is not as if you can all of a sudden say, well, let's put, it on, let's put the cancer genome on hold for the next five years. And when we, come up with, when we come up with the right set of tools, we can come back to the conversation because that conversation will cease to happen. Um, there are people who engage, who are deeply engaged in the conversation right now. And that includes scientists, epidemiologists, nurses, uh, advocates, patients, uh, their loved ones, their families. And it is a continuous conversation happening right now. It's a fragile conversation because it can be broken by 
uh, if you cease to ha have it, then, you know, it will forget. Uh, and, and in fact, you have to build it up right from scratch. So, and there are institutions, uh, national institutions that have spent their entire lifeblood, as it were, to keeping this conversation happening. The National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health. Um, so it is, a, it is a peculiarity of this ecosystem that, that while it produces rich dividends on one hand, it's actually very fragile. And it can be very quickly harmed by, you, you know, take away a few of these uh, critical pieces and the whole thing comes toppling down. Uh, just before I move to the uh, audience for questions, I guess my last question is, is about the documentary, the three-part, uh, six-hour uh, PBS series that you are doing based on uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. There's a way, and I, I love the way you framed it, this is really a chronicle of us. It's a chronicle of, of people in their lives, forcing them to look at it. But, but what I see your book doing and the discussion we've had today is really uh, one to inspire or to drive you know, collaboration to kind of continue to, to, to work on this. So what, how are you and Ken Burns thinking of organizing the series, and, and, and what is your ultimate objective uh, with, with the series on cancer? Well, the ultimate objective is to start a national conversation about cancer, and through that, start a national conversation about science, and through that, start a national conversation about the, re the relationship between society illness, medicine, and science. Um, that is a, it's a large goal, but I think cancer itself is a phenomenon that involves us all, so therefore is, the, is I think, the appropriate substrate to have that conversation. Um, I mean, the way that we're doing it is that we're, we're trying to tell stories. Um, I think of it, I think of myself, I think of scientists as storytellers, I think of physicians as storytellers, and I think of myself as one of the many storytellers in this process. I think it is a it is a story. It is our story. Uh, it is a story because it is something that affects each and every one of our lives. I mean, I mean, if you look at Ken's films, um, you know, Civil War, jazz, baseball. Um, Civil War is a film about the Civil War, but it's really a it, it's a film about uh, our contemporary story today. Baseball is a film about baseball, but it really is about as the story of aspiration and tragedy of aspirations. You know, jazz is a story about music, but it's also a story about race and its consequences in the United States. So in some ways, uh, cancer, I, I think, will be a story about cancer, but it will be a story about much larger themes, um, wellness, illness, norm normalcy, abnormalcy, uh, what it means to be uh, a society where, uh, you know, as I said, one in three or one in four people will be affected by this illness and how we deal with it historically becomes a fundamentally American story. Thank you. Let me open to the audience. We've got time for a couple of questions. Let me uh, take this gentleman here. Good morning, Dr. Mukherjee. Daniel Simon from Onyx Pharmaceuticals. Hi, Daniel. If you look at the difference in cancer outcomes across countries, across states, hospitals, and indeed individual physicians, it would seem that one of the biggest improvements today in oncology outcomes would be to get all physicians to adhere to best practice as we understand it today. How should we think about actually making that happen? So the question is, I mean, how, how, should we, how should we create best practices or how should we make physicians adhere to best practices? Because they're two different things. <laughs> adhere to best practices and adopt them. Um, so so the, first, the, the first part of the question is, I mean, how do we create best practices? Uh, are, how is there, is there a mechanism to create best practices? So here it, it comes back to a risky prediction, right? The risky prediction here, which, you know, I think is, is worthwhile thinking about is, can one create a, a, a series of best practices 
such that when you go to your physician, you know in, in, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, wherever you're being, wherever you're being treated, that you know that you're undergoing the best practice treatment and then uh, the alternative is a clinical trial that moves that best practice in some ways. Now, um, the reason I'm saying this is very important because um, the, the, the revolutions uh, of new therapeutics will not be realized in cancer medicine, in adult cancer medicine, unless adults participate in trials. And adults will not participate in trials unless they're told that, the, that what they're being treated with is state-of-the-art, but has reached a kind of plateau or a limit or a ceiling, and that the next level of knowledge generation involves a clinical trial. Right now, we have about 10% participation of adults in clinical trials. The number varies depending on the disease, but that's a dismal number. That's an abysmal number. Uh, we cannot undergo the next series of important advances in cancer medicine without involving at least 50 or 70% of patients in developed countries in clinical trials and maybe in, in, in developing countries as well. So I, I fully agree that there has to be a creation of a best practice system that allows, uh, that allows cancer medicine to move forward. Let me make one other point clear, which is that a best practice system need not, be, need not even be the most economic practice system. And we have to discriminate between these two things. The, the most cost-saving solution may not be the best solution, but we need to have a conversation about which is the better solution for us as a, as a society or a healthcare system. Is, is there an intermediate point which saves cost or is, and is most effective for the amount of cost given? I think these conversations are so vital and that the fact that we're not having them are, are, are spending our time talking about nonsense in cancer, you know, how, how, to, how, to, how to fund and how to how move forward the most basic science um, because because they're, they are, they are, you know, because because we cannot manage to fund a basic national cancer effort is really is really depressing to me well just to wrap up I just said Arthur I just want to thank you for this book and thank you for helping us to know our own narrative of something that that I think all of us have been exposed to and think about um, that we experience in our lives and I think it's uh, such a great and valuable contribution. I really recommend everyone. We do have the book uh, outside the Emperor of All Maladies. So thank you so much for this. Thank morning. you so much. And, yeah. and, and you know, my, my, my last message is don't, don't, don't let anyone convince you that this is someone else's problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. It's a national problem. We need to solve it. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Siddhartha Mumukhi. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.